I am excited to preach on this text. I love preaching from the Old Testament. I love preaching from Samuel. And as I've been preparing for this, uh, this sermon, uh, there are a lot of scripture passages that uh, I, I'll be drawing from. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to have it ready. Uh, I will resist the temptation to read all of Deuteronomy 28, Galatians uh, four, 3 through 6, uh, Romans 11, uh, and a few other Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. I'd love to just read the book of Hebrews up here. Um, we don't have time for that. Uh, but we will be looking at a lot of scriptures, trying to come to a text that uh, is far removed from us in time and may be pretty far removed in our direct uh, experience of life and yet is very relevant. Uh, though I will say that uh, some of the ideas in this text are familiar to just about every American. Uh, Thanks to Steven Spielberg and Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, virtually every American knows about the Ark of the Covenant. And as any student of the 1980s uh, will tell you, uh, that if you were to bring the Ark of the Covenant with you, you would have an invincible army. And so the plot of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark is the great Indiana Jones, a archaeologist and professor slash action hero seeking to thwart the efforts of the Nazis to gain unlimited power on this earth. Great for a movie, bad, bad theology. Uh, As we come to our text, we have a number of problems going on in Israel uh, and with the Philistines and Uh, so on and so forth. And as we come to our text, the first problem is that the Philistines are there at all. Uh, If you look back at the Bible, uh, if you read the Old Testament, uh, Moses led the people out of of Egypt. Uh, He led them to the promised land, but because of Moses uh, losing his temper and striking the rock, he was not permitted to enter the promised land. So Joshua took over, and Joshua was commissioned by God, clear out Israel, or clear out Palestine, the promised land, Canaan, of the enemies of God, of the enemies of Israel, and take possession of the land. And Joshua started out well, and uh, the Israelites started out well, and they conquered people after people. They made a few mistakes along the way. And then they got to a point where most of the people had settled and most of the people were content, and they said, this is good enough. Uh, We don't really need to get rid of those guys off in the corner. Uh, We'll be fine. And so if you look in Joshua 13 and Judges 1, you'll find that the Israelites stopped short of what they were told by God to do. They did not drive out all of the people's And so the Philistines were left, and the Philistines become a thorn in their side, but also a tool of God as the Philistines give the Israelites trouble after trouble through the book of Judges on into the book of Samuel. Uh, And uh, Israel should have triumphed over them, but they didn't. 
So the first problem is that the Philistines are there. The second is with the Israelites. When you look at the Israelites, we've seen a little bit in uh, 1 Samuel as we've spent time there. Israel is not a good place right now. The people who should be the people of God, who should be people who are seeking God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and should be a light to the nations, are worshiping idols, are engaging in very corrupt practices of worship, are generally neglecting uh, the word of God, and things are bad. Now, one more passage I want to look at is Deuteronomy 28, because understanding this text and understanding uh, the Old Testament in general requires that we understand how God relates to his people. And so I'll I'll give you a moment, but uh, please turn to uh, Deuteronomy 28 if you have a Bible. This is a text where God is giving the law for a second time. The Israelites broke the covenant with the golden calf. Moses cast down the Ten Commandments, symbolizing that the covenant had been broken. God remakes the covenant, and he tells the people a second time that he will be their God, that they need to do certain things. Now, before we look at this, I do want to say uh, the Bible teaches and our church believes that salvation is always by grace through faith. Theologians call this the covenant of grace. This is the idea that no matter who you were, whether you were Abraham or Moses or uh, David or Peter, Paul, or you or I, doesn't matter. We are saved by grace through faith. But in the Old Testament, the law was given to Israel for a specific purpose. It was to protect Israel. It was to guide them in how to live. It was to keep them separate from the pagans. And part of the conditions of the covenant were that if the, uh, if the Israelites obeyed God, they would be blessed. Listen to the first few words of Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. The Israelites were promised that if they obeyed God, if they kept the law, that they would receive tangible blessing in the land. They would have good lives in Canaan. And while salvation was still by faith, there was a layer where obedience meant if you were a good Israelite, you would win wars against your enemies like the Philistines. Your crops would grow and you would have big families. Now there's another side to this. 
And we could spend a lot more time in Deuteronomy 28 unpacking all of this, but I just want to look at just a little snippet. Moving ahead to verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Moving ahead to verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And again, that continues. What we have in our passage today is this unfolding. Israel is living in wickedness. They are not seeking God as they should. And so they go against the Philistines, who are there in the first place as discipline, and they are defeated. And in verse 3, The elders of Israel ask the right question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's about the only thing they do right in this text. They ask the right question. And they realize that it is the Lord who defeated them. Now at this point, the right thing would have been to go and pray. Or to seek God, to ask Eli, Eli, why are we being defeated? And the answer would have come something like, because you guys are a bunch of miserable sinners who are not seeking God at all, and you're defeated because you need to repent and come back to obedience. They don't do that. Instead, they decide this. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Reading closely, that it may come among us and save us. Not that he, but it. And here they make a very, very big mistake. Instead of seeking God, They act with entitlement, and they seek to manipulate God. First, they seem to think that because they are Israelites, they can do no wrong. They seem to think, well, of course God's going to be on our side. Uh, They seem to think that, hey, we are God's people. We are entitled to victory. And so it never crosses their mind that we should be careful about what we're thinking about doing. That when you mess with holy things, uh, you can't go lightly, and yet they do. 
I did want to say just a, a few words about what the Ark is, if anyone's visiting or, or don't know a lot about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark is not the same as an idol. It is not a statue of God. It is actually meant to symbolize God's throne. It was a box, as I told the children, covered in gold with uh, the image of two angels on top, shielding their eyes with wings. Inside uh, of the the ark were the actual stone tablets that Moses received from God. Uh, You had manna, the miraculous food that came down from heaven, apparently unspoiled. Um, And Aaron's staff, Aaron at one point was challenged, and God showed uh, by a miracle of Aaron's staff budding, flowers coming on it, that Aaron was God's chosen priest. And all those things were put into the, the Ark of the Covenant, and that itself was put into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And you did not go there. Only the high priest went there. And it wasn't... Uh, It wasn't the presence of God, but God was often present there, sometimes in visible glory. And the Israelites here think that bringing these signs of the covenant and bringing the symbol of God's presence will force God's hand. And of course, they're wrong. This is a problem that shows up again uh, in the New Testament. Uh, In John chapter 8, Jesus is, as he's often doing in in John, challenging the Jews, challenging the Pharisees, uh, pointing out where they're wrong and where they need to repent and believe in him. And in John chapter 8, 31 to 45, we read this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it then that you would say, We will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's another text where I'd like to read the whole thing. Uh, I encourage you to read it on your own later. Here you have Jews who are saying to Jesus, look, we're Abraham's children. We're good. And Jesus says, no, that's not enough. Uh, You need me. You need my presence. You You need me as a person to be with you, and you need the salvation that I have. The Jews of Jesus' day, like the Jews in our passage, seem to be entitled to think that just because they were Jews, that was enough. So too in Romans 11, Paul cautions Gentile Christians not to become entitled. Uh, in verse, uh, in chapter 11, he talks about Israel as God's chosen people, as a branch 
where branches were broken off so that we as Gentile Christians could be grafted in. And he says this in verse 19, Romans eleven nineteen. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you. Here we have a warning against what the Israelites had before. They were entitled. They said, we are Israelites. We can go into the holy place. We can get uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and God will do for us what we want. Brothers and sisters, we should not become arrogant. Uh, And as I'll talk about later, we should remember that we were totally depraved that we were absolutely lost in sin, that we were slaves to sin. And that it's by grace, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done, that we have been brought in. Now, one of the other things I want to mention before we move on is that we need to be careful with covenants. The words of Deuteronomy 28 do not apply to you and I the same way that they applied to the Israelites. What I'm not saying is that it's not God's word to us. But you and I are not promised that if we keep the law of God, uh, we will be blessed with physical things in this life. Uh, We are certainly not promised, as one of my professors used to say, that we will uh, get lots of land in Palestine, uh, nor would some of us want that right now. Instead, we are part of a different covenant. And that ultimately is a very, very good thing. In Galatians 3, 10 to 14, we read this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We are not under that covenant, and that is a good thing. Living under that covenant meant you would break it. And what do we see in our text? The Israelites have broken the covenant and are calling upon themselves the curse, the curse of the law. And in our text, if you add the the 4,000 and the 30,000, you have 34,000 people die because of wickedness. It is a good thing that we are not under that covenant. Now, one of the things that we also want to be careful about is making the mistake that America is a new Israel. America is not in a covenant of works with God. Uh, Now, that means that despite what we hear on the news sometimes, 
that if America seeks God in prayer together, it doesn't mean that America's economy will flourish and that uh, the dollar will go up um, against the yen and the ruble and you and I will have big 401ks and we'll live in peace. There's no promise of that. The flip side is also true that because of the wickedness of Israel, it doesn't mean that it is a guaranteed thing that hurricanes will come, that if uh, laws are passed that are not godly, that we will stand in certain judgment. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't view sin as wrong and that there aren't things in our, uh, our culture that are wrong, but rather what I'm saying is we are not in a covenant that says we will receive blessing or curse in this life. And again, that's a very good thing because if it was the case, God numbered our sins against us individually or collectively. Who could stand? Now, Jesus actually talks about this and even even in uh, the Old Covenant, there were times when Uh, people would see someone who was suffering and think that they were out of favor with God. And one of those happens in Luke 13 when the disciples see a blind man and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents? Why is he blind, Jesus? Obviously, someone sinned and that directly resulted in him being blind. And Jesus' response is, neither. This happened so that the power of God may Uh, be manifest in your midst so that you can see me heal this guy and believe. And he continues in Luke 13, 4. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? In other words, Jesus there is saying, you had some people die in a tower that fell. It didn't necessarily mean that they were out of favor with God, at least not any more than any other sinner. Living in the new covenant means that that kind of one-for-one correspondence of blessing and curse does not apply to us. Now, you can add a whole lot of other things to that. One is that God does not desire chiefly our happiness. Uh, God wants us to be happy. I will not deny that. It's a lovely thing to be happy. Just like parents want their children to be happy. But good parents will not say that the most important thing to them in any given moment is their child's happiness. Uh, Because children sometimes would be very happy to play with a blowtorch or light the kitchen on fire. Uh, among other things, and we are no different. Uh, Our happiness sometimes is destructive, and sometimes it's merely secondary to what God wants to do in us, that our own sanctification is far more important than our momentary happiness. Uh, And more than that, yes, we will receive a blessing. Yes, we are guaranteed a blessing if we are in Christ but not in this life. In this life, Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you because of me. Uh, 
think it was in uh, in First Peter when we uh, heard the passage in receiving God's grace on page seven that if ne- uh, in this you rejoice though for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is doing something in our midst and he is taking our suffering and using it to our good so that what is a result of curse, the suffering in this life, a result of the fall, sometimes a result of our own sin, is actually being turned so it becomes a blessing to us. So while we cannot uh, look at the Bible, look at our own, um, our own lives in the sense that if we obey, God will bless us, and if we uh, don't obey, God is going to curse us in this life, we can know that God is working all things to our good and that we will be blessed in heaven. Galatians 4, 2 talks about us uh, being, that is, as well, Galatians 4, 1 through 7 talks about us not being slaves anymore, but being sons, being children of God who can cry out, Abba, Father. Coming back again to our text, one of the mistakes of the Philistines was their assumption that because they were the people of God, they could do whatever they wanted. The other was making the very big mistake that they could manipulate God. They should have gotten the message. Israel, when God is with them, does not lose 3,000 people. You read other stories, there are times when 30 Israelites die and they say, God, why weren't you with us? And, well, there was this guy, Achan, He took a coat and some money, and he shouldn't have. Here, 3,000 die, 4,000. They don't get the message. And God is true to his word in Deuteronomy 28. Because of the wickedness of the Israelites, the Philistines massacre the Israelites. Interestingly, the Philistines seem to have more sense of the gravity of the situation than the Israelites. That actually continues in First uh, Samuel 5, 6, and 7, where the, the Philistines develop a very healthy respect for the fact that God is in their presence and it terrifies them and eventually they'll want to send the ark away because this God is more than we can handle. The Israelites say, yeah, get Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, should have chosen better priests. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas are known for their wickedness. Uh, We've seen that before. And they come and they bring the ark. And 30,000 Israelites die. But more importantly, in the text, the ark of the covenant is lost. Both Eli and Phineas' wife both get the gravity of this. When the messenger comes to Eli, 
He doesn't fall over when he hears that his sons are dead. He doesn't fall over when he hears that Israel has lost the battle. But when he hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been lost, he falls over and dies. Now why? Does he understand that 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 really was the kind of powerful icon the people were expecting? No. But he understands that it's a symbol that God has left, that he has abandoned his people because his people have abandoned them. Now, I shouldn't say fully abandoned because God hasn't given up on Israel and God will return and God will be present in Samuel. But it is a big deal. And when we come to the end of our passage, we have the wife of Phineas who is pregnant. Phineas's wife gives birth. And we read this in verse 20 of our text today. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The name Ichabod, from Hebrew, Ichabod, no glory. It's not a great name. It's not one we use a lot today. Uh, I don't recommend it as a boy's name. Uh, Because what the name means is God has left. The glory has departed from Israel. And here you have a woman who would have normally received great comfort. We've had a son. The family line will continue. And she is devastated. Israel could not manipulate God, and the result of them trying was judgment, death, and God, at least for a time, leaving his people. One of the things we should not do is become conceited and think that we are entitled to God's blessings or to having our own way. The other is, caution, is we cannot manipulate God intentionally or otherwise. One of the great lessons of 1 Samuel is that God is transcendent. God is far above us. God is greater than us. He is holy. Even when we talk about God in the context of the new covenant where Jesus has made us part of the family of God, where we are brothers and sisters with Jesus, where we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, the writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews twelve twenty eight. Therefore, uh, sorry, he talks about our God being a consuming fire and says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming 
fire. We should not make the mistake of thinking that once we are part of God's family, that that somehow reduces God to our level. Yes, we are brought up to his in a way. We are brought into his presence. But we do not become God Almighty. He remains God Almighty. And we are told to work out our salvation, which is free, which which is a great thing, in trembling. When it comes to approaching God, we are told that we can come boldly before the eternal throne. But Jesus cautions us against trying to manipulate God through our words. Matthew 6, 7 through 8, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We cannot make bargains with God. Sometimes it seems to work out okay. Uh, Martin Luther wasn't destroyed in a lightning storm, and he became a monk, and God used that. Uh, Doesn't mean that he forced God's hand. Uh, And when we pray, we should not openly or subtly put conditions on God. We shouldn't take the understanding that uh, we can say to God, okay, God, if you do this for me, then I'll know something. Or if, you, if I do this, do this for me. Or the understanding that if we spend time in the word, that it will automatically result in the kind of blessings we read about in Deuteronomy 28. It will result in you being filled. It will result in you spending time with God. But we cannot manipulate or barter with God and expect that he will do what we want him to do. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't answer prayer. Uh, One of the more difficult uh, texts to, uh, to wrap your head around theologically in the New Covenant is... uh, Right after, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. In Matthew 6, uh, Jesus gives the Lord's prayer and then goes so far to say that if you fast with a right heart, that God will reward us. Um, That's a topic for another sermon, but there you have uh, Jesus saying, look, if you pray and fast, God will hear you. God will reward you, whatever that means. I don't think it means that God will always give us what we ask for uh, without without any conditions. Uh, But it does mean that God hears prayer. Now, one last thing I want to talk about as I wrap this up. Uh, Where's the good news in this text? Here you have a text where Israel is just flattened where they are stripped, where they are left without the presence of God in their midst, where they are left severely weakened. In terms of pure human power, they've lost 34,000 troops. They had trouble before. Where's the good news? One is that 
Samuel isn't only four chapters long. Could have been. God could have decided, this is it. I'm done with you. Hey, Philistines. Listen to Samuel. Could have done that. God didn't. Instead, he uses this defeat, this suffering, to call his people back. And his people will repent. And by the time we get to chapter 7, we're going to see that Samuel, whose word has been going out, becomes a leader who drives the people back to the covenant, back to understanding who God is. They get rid of the idols. They seek God and they win. That's temporary, but the Bible continues, and God brings David, and God brings Solomon, and then God brings Jesus. And the glory that departed does return. The Ark of the Covenant comes back, but more importantly, Jesus comes, and he stays with his people. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, or forsake you, that quoting Joshua 1. John 10, 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus has come to us, and he will not let go of us. Because we are part of a new covenant, because our identity is not based on us keeping the law, Because it is based on what Jesus did, we are safe in a way that the Israelites were not. Again, understanding they were saved by faith, not by keeping the law. I want to conclude with these words from Psalm 103, and if you have your Bible, you can turn to them. One of the great parts of the new covenant is that despite our wickedness, God remains faithful. And the psalmist already anticipated that in Psalm 103. I'm going to read 6 to 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made his ways known to uh, he made known his ways to Moses his acts to the people of God The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love he will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The judgment on Israel was temporary. They will get the ark back. They'll lose it again. But then Jesus comes. And the kind of forgiveness we hear about in Psalm 103 
is ours forever. If you are someone who believes in Jesus, that he is God's son, that God raised him from the dead, then you have this life. If you're not, you can. Seek God and he will hear you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you.